Good morning. Greetings to each of you in the Master's name this morning. I don't know if you were paying attention to the words as we sang that song. That's one of my favorites. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. O my soul, praise Him, for He is thy health and salvation. He is thy health and salvation. All ye who hear, all those who have heard that, now to His temple draw near. A temple is a place of sacrifice and worship. We think of the temple as a place of worship, but the temple is a place of sacrifice. Something else I want you to notice, it's in verse 2. Praise to the Lord who are all things so wondrously reigneth, shelters thee under His wings, yea, so gently sustaineth. Hast thou not seen how thy desires e'er have been granted in what He ordaineth? What God has created, He designed to be good. And the heart of your desires have a good fulfillment in Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis says something like this, no one finds himself until he, no one truly finds himself until he finds himself in Christ. And that's related to what we're talking about here where it says, hast thou not seen how, how thy desires e'er have been granted in what he ordaineth? What God has ordained for us is for the completion and fulfillment of our desires, not for their taking away of our desires. Now, there could be a lot said about that, probably, and a lot of different ways that, that could be looked at, but I want to start out with that this morning, kind of that idea. I told you two weeks ago when I talked about Balaam and about Balaam's desires that I would have another message on a little more positive note using another person's life from the Old Testament. The title of the message this morning is The Passion of Elijah. And I'm kind of pulled this from James 5, where it talks about Elijah. And it says, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth for the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. And the phrase that caught my attention was subject to like passions. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. And so I did a little bit of digging into what that meant. And the phrase there, subject to like passions, means similarly affected. So, affected in a similar way. Elijah was a man who was affected in a similar way to us. So you look at the life of Elijah, many of the stories of Elijah are familiar in the Old Testament. So he had compassion for the widow who lost her son. He was afraid when he was fleeing from Jezebel. He was discouraged in the wilderness when he felt alone. And those are feelings that we can relate with. Elijah was a man who was similarly affected as we are to the circumstances around him. But... On the other hand, we also see in the accounts of Elijah, we think about Elijah as a prophet that was mighty because of the tremendous things that happened in his life. There were some tremendous things that happened in the life of Elijah. And what was the secret? What was the difference? What set him apart during his time of life? Why did God work so powerfully through him? So, I try to pay attention when people say things about my messages. And 
this past week, someone said something about my messages, and so I was trying to listen, and they, their encouragement was that some things need to be made more practical, okay? And so I was listening. And I think the message today has a very powerful message for us. I know it did for me as I studied. And so I'm going to be bringing to the front principles, and I'm going to be trying to lay them out in somewhat of a practical way. But I want to give a little bit of time at the end for you to ask questions about some of those things, about how it applies to us. So there are things that come up in the message, especially in the last five to seven minutes, that you are saying, now how do we apply that to our lives? I want you to ask me that, and I may not have an answer, but at least we can begin a discussion about it maybe. So Elijah was a prophet in the kingdom of Israel. This was a time during which the kingdoms were divided. And he was a prophet during the time of its most wicked kings. And the Bible says that Ahab was the most wicked king in Israel. Do you know why? It tells us why he was the most wicked king in Israel. Do you know why he was? It's kind of a little trivia. Because of who he married. Because he married Jezebel. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. He's first mentioned in 1 Kings 17.1 where he meets King Ahab. And at one point, in 2 Chronicles 21.12, it mentions that he wrote a letter to the king of Judah, but primarily his work was with the ten tribes of Israel. Like I said earlier, most of the stories of Elijah are familiar, and so and it covers his life covers several chapters. So instead of reading a lot of text, I'm going to paraphrase a lot of what happened in his life, the stories that happened in his life, and then go back to some specific details that I think help us to understand the life of Elijah and what we can learn from it. So in 1 Kings 17.1, Elijah met with Ahab and tells him that there'll be no dew or rain except, from his, except by his word. And then he leaves. And so the last thing that Ahab is left with is that until I say it's going to rain, it's not going to rain. He goes and hides by a brook, Cherith, and ravens come morning and evening and bring him bread and meat. And he drinks from the brook. So uh, Amazon thinks drone delivery is a new thing. God had that taken care of way back years ago. The brook dries up and God tells Elijah, go to Zarephath. I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So Elijah goes to Zarephath. He meets a widow who's picking up sticks to make her last meal for herself and her son. Elijah tells her that her food will not run out if she feeds him first. And he stays with her for the rest of the three years. During that time, her son becomes sick and dies. And Elijah takes him up to his room, prays for God to restore the child's life. And God answers his prayer. And the widow says, Now I know for sure that you are a prophet of God. So that final, that was like a confirmation for her that this man was a prophet of God. Jesus talks about that in Luke chapter 424 where he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But this woman 
accepted Elijah as a prophet of God. And the rest of Israel got to see the power of Elijah too. In 1 Kings 18, we have the Mount Carmel experience. And so in the meantime, so while um, while Elijah is with the widow, Ahab is searching Israel, all of Israel, and all the other countries around and trying to find Elijah. And the reason he is, is to get rain. And he can't find him anywhere. And the water situation is getting desperate. And Ahab and his God-fearing servant divide the land and go in search of some place to water and feed their animals. So Elijah presents himself to the servant and tells him to call Ahab. And so he meets with Ahab and he tells Ahab to gather all the children of Israel and the 400 prophets of Baal to Mount Carmel. And there he presents a challenge to prove who God really is. Which God is is the real God is the true God. So, after a couple hours, the prophets of Baal give up or are a miserable failure. And Elijah builds an altar to the Lord, prepares a sacrifice, pours water, barrels of water over it, and then in a simple prayer, fire comes down from heaven and consumes it. Consumes all the sacrifice. The prophets of Baal are captured and killed. Elijah prays for rain, and the drought ends. Jezebel hears about it and tells Elijah she's going to kill him. He flees a day's journey into the wilderness. He's worn out and discouraged, and he asks God to take his life, and he lays down to sleep. But God has more for him to do. He sends an angel to feed him, and Elijah went on the strength of that food for 40 days to the mountain of God. And there... God sent a wind, an earthquake, and a fire. But God was not in those. He was in a still, small voice that gave him encouragement and gave him work to do. He was to anoint two kings and a prophet. Then in 1 Kings 21, we have him coming again to Ahab. Ahab wanted a vineyard of Naboth, his neighbor. And when Naboth refused to sell, Ahab became upset and pouted. Jezebel devised a plot and had Naboth killed and God sent Elijah to, to meet Ahab as he walked in the vineyard and to pronounce judgment on him for his murder. Then we have him showing up again to Ahab's son Ahaziah when he was king and he'd become injured in a fall, Ahaziah had, and he sent his servants to Baal, to the prophets of Baal, to find out if he would get well. And Elijah meets them on the way and sends them back with a message that the king will die. And after the servants describe the appearance of the man they meet, Haziah recognizes it's Elijah, and he sends 50 men to bring him to the king. You know what happens in this story? How many of you know what happens in this story? This is one of the less familiar stories of Elijah, at least to me. And Elijah's up on top of a hill and they're coming to, these 50 men are coming to get him and he said, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume these men. And fire comes down and consumes the, the, the men and their captain. And so Ahaziah sends another 50. The same thing happens. And he sends another 50. And the captain of that troop recognized that he was a prophet of God. And he appealed for mercy. And Elijah went with him to meet with Ahaziah. And then his final journey, um, Elijah is done with his work on earth. And he told, tells Elisha to stay behind. This is his final journey. And Elisha declares that he wants to stay with Elijah no matter what. So they go together. 
and they cross the Jordan River. Elijah rolls up his mantle and strikes the river. They both walk through on dry ground. Elijah offers to give Elisha a request before he's taken away and says that if he sees Elijah, when God takes him away, he'll have his request, which was for a double portion of his spirit. Suddenly, as they, as they talk, the chariot and the horses of fire separate them, and Elijah is carried up into heaven in a whirlwind. Pretty amazing, pretty amazing life. This thought just occurred to me. If Elijah was standing up here, you knew all those things that happened to him in his lifetime, and he was speaking to you today, how close would you be listening? I'm not telling you that because I see people sleeping. <laughs> it's just that that's pretty amazing stuff. It really is. How much of that kind of stuff have we seen? But he was a man subject to like passions. He was similarly affected to us as we are. And John mentioned after my last message, and I really appreciate that he did, that you know we have this inner desire to follow God. But then there's the, the reality of the world that we live in and the challenges that we face and the pull of our flesh and what makes the difference. What made the difference with uh, Balaam? And what made the difference with Elijah? I think it's because Elijah had another form of desire. He had a, another form of passion. And it's this, it's this sense of passion. Intense driving and over, overmastering feeling of conviction. Ardent affection, love. A strong liking or desire for or devotion to some activity, object, or concept. And I would say in that last activity, object, or concept, his passion was for God. Elijah had a passion for God. I want to think about those verses in James, and I want to think about them in relation to what happened on Mount Carmel. And how we can see into the passion that Elijah had. In James 5.17, And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. So now I want to read 1 Kings 18, verse 2. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, and there was a severe famine in Samaria. So this is the end of the three years and six months. And there was a severe famine in Samaria as a result of the fact that it did not rain. Now, stop and think about the fact that it says in James that Elijah prayed that it would not rain. Elijah prayed for famine. Didn't he? Why? Why would you pray for famine? Why would you pray for the suffering that that would cause? The material loss. Well, I believe it was because he had a desire for the spiritual gain of Israel instead of the material gain of Israel. But he prayed that. That would be a difficult prayer to pray. But after three years and six months, when the people had been through the famine... Don't you imagine they looked towards the west every day? And I think they would have looked towards the west because that would have been the Mediterranean Sea. And said, where is the rain? And we were going through this summer and we had a month in some places, like I think down, in, down around Dayton, they didn't have rain for almost two months. Not anything to speak of. And it was dry down there. 
and the crops were withered up. And there's corn around that is just this tall and has basically no ear on it because of that, because of that drought. And that's two months. And this is three years and six months. And so we're talking about seriously, seriously dry. And I kept looking at the sky and thinking the fall's coming and we always get fall rains. We're going to get rain. The Lord's going to provide rain. But think about looking after two months and after four months and you were used to the weather patterns and you knew that certain times of year you were likely to see rains and they didn't come and they didn't come and they didn't come. I think after three years and six months, we'd be saying, God, what is going on? What are you trying to show us? 1 Kings 18, verses 17 through 19. Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Elijah said to him, Oh, that... Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandment of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me in Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So, he finally meets with Ahab and Ahab's been looking for him for three and a half years. And Ahab knows that when Elijah speaks that there's going to be rain, that the rain will come. And it hasn't come because Elijah hasn't requested it. And so he looks at Elijah and says, you, are, you have been troubling Israel. We're in this situation because of you. And Elijah says, no. We're in this situation because of you, Ahab. Because you've turned away from God. Because you've left Him. And so he tells them in verse 19 to gather the children of Israel and the, I said 400 prophets earlier. I should have said it appears 850 prophets. You count the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Ashtoreth. Ashtoreth. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah said to all the people, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. But the people answered him not a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore let them give us two bulls and let them choose one bull for themselves cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you shall, then you call on the name of your gods and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. So, Elisha issues a challenge. And in verses 25 through 29, the prophets of Baal put forth their best efforts to the point of cutting themselves and crying out for hours to God. But I want us to pick up on something that Elijah says here. Well, no, before that, I'll say that with this challenge, at the end of this challenge, at the beginning, the people wouldn't answer him a word. But at the end, when he put forth the challenge, nothing was required of them. It was just a contest between him and the prophets of Baal. They said, it's a good deal. We'll go for it. But in verse 20, he says something. I'm sorry, in verse 21, he says something that I want us to pay attention to. So this was the illustration that I made two weeks ago and basically said that that Balaam was trying to walk this line and because he was trying to walk this line he went 
he ended up going towards uh, the wrong. And we talked about how we as, as children of God have been called out of darkness into light towards the true God. But if we allow ourselves to walk along this line, we're going to be pulled back into back into the wrong. So in verse 21, Elijah says, How long will you falter between two opinions? How long are you going to hang out in between these two? Not sure which way you're going to go. If Baal is God, worship him. But if the Lord is God, worship him. Don't hang out in between the two. Don't think that you can serve one and serve both. Or act like you're serving God and serve Baal at the same time and get by with it. So which way will we go? And maybe I should have drawn my illustration a little bit different so that we were going back towards the, towards the God of our preference. And I think in the next couple of verses, after verse 29, we see Elijah's passion. So let's start at verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. So all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Then the stones he built, then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two says of seed, and that's those says are measures. And he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood, and said, Fill four water pots with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Then he said, do it a second time. They did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar. And he also filled the trench with water. And it came to pass in the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God, that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant. And that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that ye are the Lord God, and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the book, brook Kishon and executed them there. I'll stop reading there. So the first thing, Elijah, or one of the things that Elijah says right from the very beginning, or the first words that he says, when, he, when the time of the evening sacrifice comes, he says to the people, come near to me. Elijah wanted the people to come near. He wanted them to experience what was about to happen in a front seat manner. He wanted them to be close to what happened. He had a desire that the people would see God. And that comes back up a little bit later as well. But then, in verse 32, after they had come together, he does something. He repairs the altar of the Lord. So apparently there was an altar that was there. And he repairs that altar. 
And he took twelve stones according to the number of the twelve tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Then the stones, then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. So, what's that mean? What's the significance of the him taking twelve stones, him repairing the altar of the Lord, him taking the twelve stones and and using those stones to build the altar for this sacrifice? And especially, why did the writer put in here about the twelve tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. Well, Israel has been, from that time, the name of the people of God. And Israel means, comes from several words, but the but the main words that it comes from mean to wrestle with God. So the people of God are those who are willing to wrestle with God or engage with God or to seek a blessing from God. Because you see, that's what it came down to. There was this wrestling and Jacob said, I won't let go of you until you bless me. So that's the kind of wrestling that it's talking about. Israel shall be your name. And so this altar that Elijah is building up is representing the people of God. And one of the things that that I think is, is very significant to our lives is a respect for the people of God, and a respect for why we are at this place. Those people were at that place not because of who they had worshipped, but because of who had worshipped before them. They were not the people of God because they were living perfectly. They were not in that place because they were were living perfectly. They were in that place because they had become part of the family of God because of the worship of others. And I believe Elijah was giving them a message by repairing that that was saying that I am repairing, I'm building up your heritage. I'm building up the heritage of faith. And there's a lot of ways that that can be understood or maybe even argued against, but I'm talking about faith. Okay? I'm not talking about the fact, you know, maybe the the individual aspects of, of what that faith has produced, even though that matters. I'm talking about you are here this morning because other people had faith. And we dare not disrespect or tear down the fact that other people had faith and brought us to this point. And we dare not tear down the people of God because the people of God is the altar on which we offer our sacrifice. And Mark mentioned in the opening devotional about, and I don't remember which verse it was, but I caught something about that the brotherhood is being made up into a temple of God. And where is the temple? What is the temple? The temple is a place of sacrifice. So Elijah prepares the sacrifice. He lays the wood in order. He puts the bull on the the altar. And then he does the unthinkable. He makes it harder for God. He pours water down over the sacrifice. He wasn't making it harder for God. He was showing the people that this was not some trick. This didn't come from Him. He didn't have fire hidden down underneath there somewhere. 
He was extinguishing any possibility of this being his work. To leave only open one possibility. And that was that it was the work of his God. And then in his prayer, Elijah reveals his passion. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. Elijah wanted the people. He had lived his life. He had done what he had done in his life because he wanted it to be known that God was the God in Israel. And that I'm your servant and that I've done all these things at your word. That he was simply doing what God had told him to do. What God had asked him to do. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know. That the children of Israel might know. That you are the Lord God. And that you have turned their hearts back. And that you have turned their hearts back to you again. So do you catch the wording there? That the people might know that God was working to change their hearts. To turn them back to himself. And that's what he was doing with this drought. And with this comparison between these gods. When people see the Lord their hearts get changed. But only when they see the Lord do hearts get changed. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. So the people saw and they responded. So, I said at the beginning from this song, all ye who hear, now to His temple draw near. Those who have heard must respond. And then Elijah calls them to further response. He says, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let them escape. So they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the Kishon and executed them there. You see, Elijah called them to take up a task that would purify the land. That helped to purify what was drawing them away, what was drawing them back to Baal. He said, seize that and get rid of it. Don't let any aspect of that escape. James 15, 18. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. I found that really interesting. The earth produced its fruit. You see, the ground was cursed because of sin. That principle was back in Genesis. But a return to God produced fruit. So what does that mean for us? Well, I would say the first thing is, what's our passion? Our intense, driving, overmastering feeling or conviction. Our ardent affection. A strong liking or desire for or devotion to some activity, object, or concept. What's our passion? Elijah offered his sacrifice because God told him to. And you're told to offer a sacrifice too. You're actually told to offer several sacrifices. But I think this one fits best with what we're talking about. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. 
And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God is speaking to you. I beseech you. What does He tell you to do? You present your bodies a living sacrifice to give the offering and to be the sacrifice. God wants you to be to do both. He wants you to come and give it. And He wants it to be you. He wants you to be on that altar. Sounds pretty gruesome, doesn't it? But did you catch? By the mercies of God. So remember what I said earlier about how God has designed your desires to be fulfilled by following Him? You see, this sacrifice is not, doesn't take us to a, a worse life. It doesn't take us to something that It's not keeping us from something that is good. It's taking us to something that is better. This sacrifice is taking us to something that is better. It's in the context of His mercy. You give yourself to a God of mercy. I want to think a little bit about this living part. You present your bodies a living sacrifice. We sometimes talk about that living sacrifice as the fact that we are alive while we're presenting it. And there's some truth to that, but I don't think that's the core of what this means. I think what this means is that your life will be consumed by the sacrifice. So your life is going to be consumed if you put yourself on that altar. Are you praying that the fire of God will come down and consume your life? That your life will be used for the purposes of the one true God? Is that your passion? Because you see, fire transforms the nature of a material. And the fire of God will transform the nature of your person. It will change your focus from the visible to the invisible. It will take you from doing right because you have to to doing right because you want to. It's a voluntary offering that you make of your physical life and your thinking, the way you view the world, every aspect of what makes you up is laid on the altar before God. That you might be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the kind of transformation God wants to do in us. But when that fire of God comes down, will we get rid of the things that pull us towards Baal? Will we seize the prophets of Baal? And execute them there. As that fire is burning in our hearts. Will we take those steps. Why would you do that? That you might prove. What is that good and acceptable. And perfect will of God. See that's what Elijah was doing. He wanted to prove that, that God. Was God in Israel. And he wanted to prove that what he was doing was according to God's will. And that's what this sacrifice is calling you to do. To prove the will of God. So that others might see, so that others might know. So that God might turn their heart back again. That there might be fruit. 
that the rains could come. So, in this passage here in Romans 12, God follows up this call to sacrifice with some very practical instructions. And what I find really interesting is that immediately afterward it begins to talk about the body. And about giving ourselves into the body. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion with our faith. I'll stop reading there and just say that the reference to the altar that I made back with Elijah's sacrifice has to do with the fact also that we also give ourselves into the body of Christ. And as we give ourselves into the body of Christ and give our sacrifice in the body of Christ, then we show people that we are followers of Jesus Christ. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So I'd like for you in the context of this message to take the following passage during your devotional time. It doesn't have to be all of your devotional time, but some of your devotional time. Look at the following message here in this passage in Romans. 12, 13, 14, and the beginning of 15. Up to about 15, verse 13 or 15. Because that is very practical instruction and it relates to how we relate to one another and to those around us. Do you have any questions? Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. How can we do that? I'm becoming more and more convinced that the number one thing that relates to us, God was in Christ as one. We are in Christ. His desire is that we be in Him as He and the Father are together. And that we be together as one in Him. And so I'm becoming more and more convinced that it is the love that we have for one another that displays to the world around us that we are followers of Christ and it is what reconciles them to God.
how do they know that? That's a great question. <clears throat> so, there was a man that called me a couple, probably 10 or 12 years ago and wanted to come see my poultry operation. Actually, it wouldn't have been that long ago because it was after, yeah, it would have, it would have been, it had been six years, six years ago, I think, that he called me. And he came and uh, we got to talking, we talked about the farm and then we got talking about spiritual things. And he was visiting churches at the time. He wasn't from our local area, but he was visiting churches and he had visited several conservative churches and he was struggling because some of the things he saw at this church he liked and some of the things he saw at this church he liked and he was having a hard time reconciling what where he was going to go to church. And so I just shared with him some of the brotherhood experience that I had had at Bethany. And he said, I wish I could find a church like that. And I think that we have an opportunity if we have this kind of churches, the kind of that kind of love in our churches, we're going to be so excited about it that it's going to make people want to come to our churches to see them. But if we don't have that kind of love in our churches, if we just kind of see ourselves as, as you know, we're just here to get a good message or get a, you know, a little pep talk or whatever, and, and that, that unity of love it doesn't exist there, I don't think we're going to display what God wants us to display. That's what people are really looking for is people who actually love one another. And they don't care so much about what you believe as much as they do about whether you're going to care about them when the chips are down. And so I think if we have that kind of brotherhood, we'll be talking about it to those people. And it's all, it's all still in Christ, you know, so that you have the, the message. They have to meet Christ too. Does that answer your question? Yeah. I don't right away start talking to people about my church or God's church. That's not where I go right away when I start talking to people. They can usually sense in your life whether you have love. Yeah. And the grace of God. Yeah. And that has to be there. That has to be there too. So that's a good point. Well, you want to talk about something else? Hit me up later.